The New Testament reading for today is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again together. Father God, we pray that you'd so speak now that we would know for certain that you do truly speak. Lord, let your word come now from your word through my mouth into the hearts of your people and grant to us the gift of faith to hear you, to receive, and to do as you say. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts today, may they be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today, as I've said many times already, is Pentecost Sunday, and uh, this morning we're going to look together at Luke's account of the descent of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. And Pentecost comes from the Greek word meaning 50th. Pentecost lands 50 days after Passover, and it was a Hebrew feast devoted to the, uh, to the crops, to the, the uh, harvest. It was called the Feast of Weeks. 50 days. The disciples had been waiting for 50 days since Jesus' death and since his resurrection. And we know that a good number of them, a good number of them, even now, post-resurrection, they were wondering when it was that Jesus was going to set up his, his everlasting kingdom, his indestructible kingdom. A few days go by after the resurrection, a few more days go by after the resurrection. A few weeks go by after the resurrection. More weeks go by after the resurrection. And still, Jesus has not set up his kingdom. He's been making separate appearances here and now to various groups of disciples at one time. To 500 altogether, he appears. But now at his last appearance, just before our passage today, just before Jesus is going to ascend up to heaven, they ask him again, Lord, is it now? Is now the time that you're going to set up your kingdom? And Jesus responds again, asking them to wait longer. You will be my witnesses, he says. 
You will go across the earth with my message and with my name, but wait. You can't do it yet. It's not in you right now to do it. You need power to be my church, Jesus says. You need my Holy Spirit. So brothers, wait, he says. And once he ascends and he's, he's swallowed up into those clouds, they seem kind of astonished, don't they? I mean, they're standing there and they're just looking up into the heavens. And I'm convinced that if it hadn't been for those angelic visitors, they would have stood there all day. But those heavenly men, robed in white, they come along and they say, don't worry. He's not abandoned you. It's okay. All's okay. Listen to his words and wait. He's going to come again. You need the Spirit. Wait. And so these followers of Jesus, they begin to pray. We're told that there is about 120 of them. They meet in the upper room, both men and women together. And they couldn't possibly have anticipated what was about to happen. They couldn't have expected the thing that was coming down. It's the promise of the Father, they're told, that you're waiting for. It's the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you in great power. And perhaps they thought, as many people think today wrongly, that this was merely some kind of extra support, some gilding around their lives to help them, some addition, some mere aid to help them along the way, like a power-up in a video game, little boost that you get. But that couldn't be further from the truth. This was no mere aid. This was no mere super vitamin that Jesus was giving them for power. This was the great promise of the new covenant that Jesus has promised all along to his people. Acts 1-4, the promise of the Father. This is the great moment of the new covenant that would change everything for the people of God when the very glory of God the sacred presence of God, His holiness would make His abode in the hearts of men and of women. And the Lord promises to His people that which has been external, the law, the code of His holiness, and He by His own presence now would make that external internal by writing it on the hearts of men. Hebrews 8.10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their minds and I will write them in their hearts and then I will be their God. And then they will be my people. I will take what's on the outside, what from the outside could only accuse the ministry of death, Paul calls it, the ministry of condemnation, and I will put it on the inside of my table, a new table, not a table of stone, but a table which is your heart by my Spirit. And so Paul now says to the church at Corinth, this was the call to worship today, he says, you are now a living letter written by Christ, not on tablets of stone, but 2 Corinthians 3.3, written on the tablet of the human heart, written by the Spirit of God Himself. 
You see, what we have here in Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the people of God, a people whom by the Spirit, who by the blood of the eternal covenant are made to love God by nature. Not by external compulsion, not because they're told to do so, but because now they do so by nature because of who they are. Augustine, in his great commentary on Exodus, notes that the law was given to the people of Israel 50 days after the Passover. And the law was written by the Spirit upon the hearts of God's people in new flesh tablets, the great act of the new covenant, making a people who are truly free, free to be for God, free to love God more than anything else, free to cherish God. This great act of the new covenant happened 50 days after the great and true Passover, when the Lamb of God took away the sin of the whole world. So Jesus ascends and the Spirit descends as the promise of the Father to give power to his people. That is freedom. Freedom to become like God. 2 Corinthians 3.17, for where the Spirit of the Lord is, now there is freedom. Not freedom from God. Not freedom to do whatever you want to do, but freedom to be for God. Freedom for God. You will receive power, Jesus says, and when that power comes, you will be free to be for God. And when He comes... And when he fills you, when he changes you, when he writes my laws upon your hearts, then and only then will you be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to all the ends of the earth, because then and only then will you speak of me. And then and only then will you glorify me. Then and only then will you advertise my righteousness and not your own. You will speak of my glory and not your own. And then and only then will you be free to urge people to be for God. Because you want to yourself from the heart. And so wait, Jesus says, wait for the promise of the new covenant. Wait for the spirit to make you a living letter. Now, as we work through this passage today, I want to notice Three things that define this great moment of the new covenant. Three things that define this New Testament church in this passage in Acts 2. I want to look at the setting, and I want to look at the symbol, and then I want to look at the sound. The setting, the symbol, and the sound. First of all, the setting. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. Now, it's of utmost importance that we recognize that the Spirit did not descend to 120 different homes. The Spirit did not descend to 120 different upper rooms. When He comes to create the people of God, they're together. Even as He rests upon each of them individually, He comes to them as one body, one people, one assembly, one church. And you can go right through the New Testament and do a wonderful study on the oneness of the church, but I think few places 
put it so elegantly as we read in John 17 when Jesus prays to the church or prays to his Father that the church would be perfectly one, that the church might be so one that they would share in the oneness of the Father and the Son. We read that they were all together in one place. That's how the Scripture paints the beginning of the church, and you'll notice that's how the Scripture paints the consummation of the church in the very same way. A great multitude, now in the book of Revelation, a great multitude that no one can number. They were standing there from every nation, standing in one place, together before the throne, before the Lamb, crying out with one voice, salvation belongs to our God. Together, proclaiming the mighty works of God. The church begins in one place. The church ends together in one place. And by God's grace, the church is meant to travel this life together in one place. This is where the blessing falls. This is where the holy anointing comes. How blessed it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Behold, the Lord says, it's like the oil running down Aaron's beard. And so we must not expect God's blessing anywhere else than in the unity of the church. And this is why, by the way, Sunday worship is so precious. This is why Sunday worship is so powerful that it's a taste of what we're, where we came from, where we begin together in one place. It's a foreshadowing of what's coming together in one place as we glorify and as we exalt God together in one voice. And it's a sign of where and who we are. One people, one baptism, one people of God, no longer strangers, no longer exiles, no longer outsiders, but unified in the body of Christ. And because, my brothers and sisters, the devil knows this so well, because the devil knows that this is where God receives glory. John 17, 23, the Father is glorified by the togetherness of the church. He does everything he can possibly do to create division and disunity and party spirit and splinters and factions. And you can look past the history of the church the last 2,000 years and you can witness how ferocious indeed the devil has been in attempting to chop up the church and to split up the people of God. <laughs> and for some reason, I don't know. The Lord in his providence allows it. But we should never, ever seek it. The Lord in his sovereignty and patience bears with it and uses it, but we should never, ever be glad for disunity in the church. In fact, it should be one of our greatest griefs and it should be a cause for tears that the togetherness of the people of God is so often marred and hindered by sin and by selfishness and by darkness and by the devil. It's a hard thing, is it not? It's hard to strive for the doctrinal purity like we're supposed to do, 1 Timothy 4.16, and at the same time, church, to love, indeed, to cherish those we disagree with. But that's the tightrope we're called to walk. 
Nothing less will do. We must always be Catholic before we're Reformed, or else our reform is of little value to anyone, much less to Jesus. There are few theologians who exhibit this so well as the great Calvinist preacher Thomas Goodwin. Goodwin is as reformed as they get, 16th or 17th century Puritan preacher. You find few so strictly Calvinistic as Goodwin, and yet his Catholicity is even stronger. Goodwin says this, he says, I never yet took up religion by parties in the lump. I have found, he says, by trial of things that there is some truth on all sides. I found holiness where you would little think it, and so likewise truth. I have learned this principle, which I hope I shall never lay down till I am swallowed up of immortality. And that is this, to acknowledge every good thing and to hold communion with it in men, in churches, in whatsoever else. I learned this from Paul. I learned this from Jesus Christ himself. He Filleth all in all. He's in the hearts of all his people, and he fills them in their ordinances to this day. And where Jesus Christ fills, why should we deny an acknowledgement and a right-handed fellowship and communion with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Brothers and sisters, the church began together The church will end together. The church should continue together despite our differences, the setting. Secondly, the symbol, Acts 2.2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. What a description that is. I mean, it must have been astonishing and not a little terrifying, I think. It happens all of a sudden, no warning. They're just praying. They don't know what to expect. And all of a sudden, this mighty explosion of visuals and of sound out of nowhere. It's tempting to romanticize this, is it not? We see those paintings, various paintings with these Apostles kind of peacefully just praying there with the flames and tongues of fire above their foreheads. But this unexpected sound of a mighty rushing wind must have been terrifying to them, only to be accompanied by 120 pockets of blazing fire in a room that must have been cheek by jowl. Sound, light, heat. Boom, right now. Everything about the description here of the symbol of the spirit, everything about this speaks the untamable might of God. Terrifying. (laughs) He arrives now with the two elements that can't be tamed, wind and fire, two elements that often ravage the earth and leave its inhabitants utterly helpless. He comes to us now in Pentecost as the forces that knock down, that uproot, that burn, that destroy. He comes now as the one who shakes. He comes as the one who consumes. And he comes like this so that the church will never mistake that the Spirit of God is nothing less than the very person of God. 
The God who you can't tame. The God who you can't make do what you want to do. The God that you can never put in a box. The God who kills Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5. And the God who makes alive. Tabitha in Joppa. Acts chapter 9. And so, brothers and sisters, it's very important today that we never forget, especially in an age and in a church that is so often so very casual, that a characteristic disposition of the early church was awe. Acts 2, 4, 3, and awe, we read, came upon every soul. Acts 5, 11, and great fear came upon the whole church. You see, when we domesticize God, when we domesticize the Spirit, when we forget who He truly is, the great, untamable wind, mighty, rushing, the great, untamable fire, consuming, the one who uproots and plants, the one who kills and gives life, when we forget this, then our worship becomes a weak and a trite, and it becomes a patronizing thing. And it will never, ever reflect our God to the nations. And it will not lead us to the nations. The only reason the apostles could turn the world upside down, Acts 17.6, is because they believed in a God who could turn the world upside down as a mighty rushing wind and as a burning fire. I mean, how else could Hudson Taylor, that little, small British man, go into China... <laughs> And do all those things that he did, except that he believed that the great, mighty, rushing wind made the powers of paganism an altogether pallid thing. The symbol here in Acts 2 reflects the godness of God, the unstoppable, the untamable might of the living God, the sovereign power of God who can do whatever he wants to do in heaven and in earth. And the church needs to see this afresh, and the church needs to believe this afresh, that God can do in this earthly city whatever He wants to do, and God can still turn the word upside down. He can still disturb and shake and uproot this world that we live in today so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus. He's still in that business today. The symbol. And finally today, the sound. Acts 2.4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there's been much said and much taught and there's been much done with respect to the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2. And I think much of it has not only been unwise, but I think much of it has been unscriptural. It doesn't take into account the context of what Luke is trying to say here. And that context, that thing, is the reality from Acts 1.8. That the church is called into being, the church is made the church to be a light to the nations. It's not called to be a community of ecstatic and individualistic experience, but it's called to be a community of witness 
to those who need the Lord. I will make you a light to be the nations, uh, a light to the nations, he says. I will make you to proclaim my glory and my name to the world. I will make you, Acts 1-8, to be my witnesses. And so now when the Spirit comes later on in Acts chapter 2, accordingly, what does he give them? He gives them the gift of utterance. He makes them witnesses of the saving works of God. And so following upon this then, as they're speaking in tongues in this passage, they're not praying. They're not praying here. Right from verse 4 all the way to verse 12, the Greek word that Paul uses is laleo. He has many opportunities to use a different word to describe prayer. He can say many other things, even as he does in Acts 1.14, where he uses the Greek verb or the Greek word prosuke for prayer. But now Luke repeatedly emphasizes the idea of spoken proclamation. They're speaking. They're telling. They're describing. They're being witnesses to the mighty works of God. In fact, they're doing what Peter himself describes in verse 17. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters, they will prophesy. That is to say, your sons and your daughters will declare the might and the worth and the saving truth of God. See, the sound tells us that the first act of the church is to proclaim. The first act of the church is not to go into the poorhouse. The first act of the church is to proclaim the truth of God. The church exists to proclaim in its worship and in its spoken witness. It's the first and it's the fundamental task of the church to proclaim the glory in the salvation of the living God. And it does this from the orders of ministry. It does this from pastors and teachers and evangelists. But it also does this in the work of the whole people of God. All of its members. We read that all, all your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That is, they shall all speak of me. They shall all tell of me. They shall all tell the gospel of Jesus in the home in the street, in the workplace, in the university, my spirit will give utterance to them all. And not only this, but the sound in the scripture today tells us that he gives utterance for all. The momentous symbol of Acts 2 tells us that the proclamation was for all people. I mean, what could the church have concluded? After they, all of them, all of them speak spontaneously in foreign languages that they've never learned, what could they possibly have concluded except that the gospel is for the whole world and not just for the Jews? Brothers and sisters, we're mistaken today if we think that it was easy for these early Jews to learn the gospel was for the whole world, for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. This was nothing short of Copernican revolution for them, and they needed a startling sign to be convinced of it. 
And so God now moves in such a way that none of them could possibly expect and none of them could possibly deny. He so moves their tongues so that they'll never forget that Jesus is for every tribe and he's for every nation and he's for every language. And through this amazing symbol, this amazing sign, the gospel now begins to go out to all people and as various languages are spoken and various languages are proclaimed, the multitudes are drawn in together. Verse 6, at this sound, the multitude now gathers together. You see the juxtaposition here. You see at Babel in the wake of great and unspeakable sin. God uses language to confuse and to disperse, lest humanity become so organized and its sin becomes so insufferable that the world lapses in the wake of it. But now at Pentecost, in the wake of great grace, God uses language and the language of the gospel, the language that Jesus Christ, through his blood, has defeated everything that possibly stood against humanity. God now uses this language to gather and to unite all men for the healing of the nations. Languages originally in the wake of sin disperse. Now language in the work of grace gathers together. And at Pentecost, we have the beginning of the healing of the nations. And there's no stopping it. The great defragmentation has begun. As in Ezekiel's vision, the river has begun to flow. And rather than petering off, it gets wider and it gets deeper. First from the altar, that river springs up. Then it goes to the ankles. Then it goes to the waist. Then it gets deep enough and wide enough to swim in. And then that river flows through those bedraggled and tortured arid deserts. It goes through all these places and finally it even goes to the the Dead Sea in that that place where no life can possibly be. And the river brings life to everything that it touches. Everything begins to teem with life until we have those marvelous words in Ezekiel 47.9, so everything will live where the river goes. Brothers and sisters, the promise of Pentecost this Sunday is that everything will live where the river goes. (laughs) Everywhere where there's death. Everywhere where there's darkness. Everywhere where there's dominion of Satan. The worst possible place that you conceive, everything will live where the Spirit goes. And I think it's of unspeakable significance today that we remember that the church wasn't born in a synod. Church wasn't born in a convention wasn't born in a business meeting or a demographic study. The church wasn't born in a think tank where we think about market research tools for reaching the lost. The church was born in a room of people together who were waiting for God. They were waiting for the supernatural. They were waiting for the divine power to do what would otherwise be humanly impossible. And so I want to conclude today by reading a short passage from James Stewart, that great New Testament scholar as he writes about the great day of Pentecost. This day, he says, is the great stream of supernatural grace 
to fertilize a thirsty and haggard world. This is the soul refreshing experience for lack of which multitudes today in our world, they're going through life restless and they're frustrated and they're dissatisfied and they're thirsty for something that they don't know what it is. This Pentecost is the surge and the power of the Spirit. He's pouring out across the barren scene of human misery. Is there anything more that we need? Anything a wounded world needs more for healing of its hurt? Anything a languid church needs more for the vitalizing of its faith? Anything for our own dull, defeated lives? Brothers and sisters, our conventionally religious lives, anything we need more to make them alert and dynamic and victorious than a new baptism, a new submersion in the Spirit of God. Down from the heights of the divine must come the inrush of our creative energy, else all our plans are vain, whatever we try to do. These early disciples, he said, had enough dynamite to turn the world upside down. And the point is, it's still true. This is the wonderful news of Pentecost, he writes. And so for you today, any of you, if you feel that you need to be touched afresh by the spirit of grace, it was given to those apostles at Pentecost. Who needed to pray shortly after? Oh, Lord, fill us again. If you feel that today, then following the service today, I'm going to invite you just to wade into the river. And I'll pray for you very simply. And I'll anoint you with oil. And I'll pray that the great stream of supernatural grace will meet you afresh to make you a witness for the gospel with power, and to make you more than a conqueror in all things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.